Um, so yesterday you were talking at the Acorn, in, uh, just down the down the road, as they say, um, and you were talking about kind of the the economy and how it's impacting the community and how the community sh could deal with the kind of current climate. Um, if you could go, just give us a quick brief rundown of what you're talking about. That would be that would be great. I was basically talking about the prospects for a second Great Depression, only actually worse than than the last one, because the consequences of or the the depression is like the hangover. So the scale of the hangover is proportionate to the scale of the party that preceded mm -hmm. it, and we've just had the biggest party in human history in terms of an enormous creation of credit, and the flip side of credit is debt. So. We have, have just blown the biggest financial bubble in human history, and it, it's by no means just local. There are local manifestations of it in many places, but it really is global. It's part of the globalized finance system that uh, has emerged since the early 1980s. So now we're looking at, we've enjoyed the fruits of that, all the enhanced material consumption possibilities. Uh, now we're going to have to deal with the aftermath. So what a credit bubble does is it brings forward demand. You have an enormous amount of demand in the short term. Everything is just humming. You crash demand for years thereafter, and that that's a depression. So that's that's where we're going. And I'm trying to explain to people that the top-down solutions that people typically think of when it comes to fixing the problem, the, the things that come from politicians or national governments, those things are just not going to work very well because they're critically dependent on tax revenues. When you don't have tax revenues to anything like the same extent, you end up with an awful lot of, of people chasing what small amounts of money the government may have to do anything. Yeah, and basically top-down initiatives don't work very well. They're un they end up underfunded and overcomplicated, terribly bureaucratic, so a lot of the money that isn't invested in them just goes for administration and not much actually gets out into helping anybody. What I try and do is encourage people to build initiatives from the bottom up because things like that can be much simpler, much more transparent, much more locally accountable and can simply function on a shoestring in comparison and they actually work because you, they work within an area, within a, a scale where trust still operates, which probably isn't the case for all the way up to the national level, let alone international level. So I think a lot of these community initiatives have a genuine chance of success if we can try to fund them. So what I try to do is make sure that the base of the pyramid has enough money, the money that comes out of a, a collapsing system, to actually fund these bottom-up initiatives that, that need to be funded if we're going to get through a depression with the minimum amount of pain. Exactly. Cool. Um, obviously, locally, in a, looking at the local picture, Penzance, I believe, was, in terms of the UK, in the top or the bottom 20, you could say, um, worst hit towns with this current uh, recession that's happening. Um, we've seen it at a local level. Uh, the high street that we in Penzance has gone from having every shop full to about half of them at least closing down over the next... Uh, either already closed down or over the next few months. Um, you can open any local newspaper to see that. Um, what kind of, what would, could be done to kind of either halt this or to start regeneration? Or is that even just look at kind of a pie in the sky attitude to have at the moment? Well, 
I don't think it's a pie-in-the-sky attitude. If people start thinking, what can we do to get us business as usual, that's pie-in-the-sky. Business as usual is not coming back. So we are going to be living a very different life. But provided our expectations are reasonably in line with reality, we can actually achieve quite a lot. I think part of the problem for Penzance is inevitably going to be the, the focus on tourist money. I was about to say tourist dollars, and then I remembered what country I was in. But uh, the, the reliance on tourist money is, is the big problem, because tourists are not going to be here in anything like the, the percentages that they are now. When people don't have money, they don't take holidays. Although you may benefit from people who are taking a step backwards from foreign holidays to holidays at home. So it's not that the tourism necessarily collapses right away. There may be that intermediate stage where you don't actually do so badly, but I think Penzance absolutely has to diversify away from that kind of structural dependence on on uh, the money that tourists will bring into the community and look at other ways of supporting the community. So how do you feed yourselves? How do you provide for the essentials of your own existence across a wide range of possibilities? And this area managed to survive you know, pretty much in isolation for a very, very long time. So I would argue that it can be done at, at some level, but we really need to start thinking in terms of what we're going to do, what scale are we trying to operate, and to start to bring these things together and to work out how we might fund them. Not just fund them in terms of money, but also where does the time and the initiative and the effort and the skills come from. All of that needs to be put together at a local level. But there's no reason that a place like this, which does have quite a lot of land, shouldn't be able to produce quite a decent amount of food. You might have to stop growing daffodils and, and actually start growing something that you'd want to eat uh, in, in the local area. But it can be done, and it, it's a matter of what can you do and at what scale are you going to do it. The fishing around here, unfortunately, will have taken a big hit, as it has almost everywhere. Fish stocks are crashing, so it is going to be harder to supply protein and things in a diet around here in a time when fish is going to be harder to come by and more expensive than it is now. It's going to be a lot of competition with Spanish trawlers and, and things like that, other fishing fleets looking into waters where perhaps they shouldn't be, but uh, they will when there's not enough to go around. So it's a matter of local self-sufficiency, looking at what is possible here, and then trying to make sure that it happens, and getting over some of the things that are not going to be possible. Because business as usual really will not be possible. So we will end up, all of us, with a lower standard, material standard of living than we have now. But if we're realistic about what can be achieved, then it doesn't have to be the end of the world. It doesn't have to be a, a disaster. It can, the pain can be mitigated if we start to build bottom-up structures before we actually have to rely on the results. Because you need learning curve time. You need time to make mistakes. You don't get it right necessarily the first time. There's a lot of local knowledge involved in things like growing food. And we haven't had to do that much for the last while. A lot of the knowledge has, has leached away because there was always the thought that we can always go to Tesco's. And it doesn't matter what you can grow here because you just buy it in the supermarket anyway. When you go back to local self-sufficiency, you actually have to start tapping that local knowledge as to what grows here, what is edible, and and things like that. So there's a lot of work to do. And I really do try and inspire a sense of urgency so that people will get out there and do these things so that by the point where the top-down systems are faltering, there will be something from the bottom up to replace at least some of the essential goods and services that people rely on. Um, 
the obviously the self-reliance and all this this kind of thing um, it will result hopefully in a, in a closer net community and interaction between people hopefully you get more interaction than you do these days um, looking at it at a slightly larger scale um, some people in Cornwall and obviously Penzance as well um, you may have heard of the Mebian Kerno group. No. Okay, the Mebian Kerno is Cornwall. Isn't yeah, it? yeah, Mebian as well. Yeah. It, essentially, they're both Cornish words. Um, we have, I think he's the local councillor. Simon Reed is still local councillor for Mebian Kerno. They're a group who are looking to have Cornwall realised as an independent entity away yeah. from the UK. Yeah. Would that, obviously, with um, relying more on a kind of like either. A, town-based or even a region-based level, so, Pe so Penzance, Penwith, or at a greater extent Cornwall, would you say independence would be a the, the right thing to be going towards at the moment, or do you think that's something that shouldn't really, we should be moving away from instead because we should be focusing more on the, the smaller scale rather than trying to get rid of our ties to the UK, which some people are trying to do? I think... Uh it, the thought of independence is somewhat premature. At this point, I don't think it's very realistic. If you get things collapsing to a much smaller scale so that organization ends up being at a neighborhood level, then inev inevitably at some point, if you go far enough down that route, the ties to the, the larger group become irrelevant anyway, in which case whether you are formally independent or not doesn't really matter because you are functionally independent. You may down the line get to that point, but I think we're a long way from that right now, and I think the idea of political independence at this point is, is not going to fly, and I think Cornwall isn't, at this point its economy isn't really large enough, and, and it isn't able to function independently enough to really be able to, to cope in the way that the people here would want to see. We have the same issue at, at home with Quebec, because there's they would like to break away, so would Newfoundland. But these, these groups are quite small, they're not a lot of people, and they typically would have to take on a big share of the national debt that they then probably couldn't pay. So I think independence at this point is probably a bit of a non-starter, unless you're at least as large as Wales or Scotland, and even they aren't truly independent. So I think anything smaller than that right now, that, that wouldn't fly. But if we end up reducing things to a small enough scale, you may get there in the end. It's just that I think we're a long way from that point. But what you were saying earlier about civic engagement and communities is absolutely the point uh, that we really need to come together as communities. All Anglo-Saxon societies are quite atomized compared to what they once were. In other words, people don't have the connections they used to have. They come home exhausted from a job and they shut the door and switch on the television and switch off their mind and they don't go out and engage with, with other people. They don't tend to join things. And th there, there are many aspects of civil society that draw people together that have been leeching away over the last few decades. And it's partly to do with more money and less time. So people, sometimes people find connections a bit wearing and they like to just be able to come in, shut the door and, and that's it. But I think we, we lose something very important when we move away from from community. But yes, it can be a little uncomfortable for everyone to have hands in each other's back pockets and everyone to know what everyone else is doing. And some people find that very intrusive. 
but there's also something in some ways profoundly comforting about it, knowing that there are people who've got your back. There are people who know everything about you, know your strengths and your weaknesses, and, and are prepared to help support you, and you help support them. That's what human society has been about for most of human history. And we are really, in this last century, the first societies that have truly moved away from that. There has been a price to pay. Yes, a lot of us have iPads and things, and we have a higher material standard of living, but we have definitely paid a price for that. And really, that kind of independence that you get with, say, a society based on nuclear families is really only possible when you have top-down support at the state level. So you've got things like child care programs and all sorts of welfare programs and unemployment that all come from the top down in places where you don't have any state supports and have never had them people live in extended families all the time and they each have everyone has a role a few people will be out earning actual money the rest will be doing something else useful for the the group and i think that kind of structure is extremely robust and when you have extended families within a larger community who are all very much part of each other's lives then I think you have a structure that's very robust and very resilient where you have everyone knows what the skill base is in the whole community everyone knows who it is who can do what that needs to be done and people tend to come out and do it even if they don't get paid for it because they know if they contribute their skill over here today someone else will contribute a different skill for them tomorrow and, and I think that's the sort of thing we need to move back towards if we do that, if we can get our expectations in line with reality and work out how to provide these goods and services at a local level, especially if you can do it in a way that's independent of money, then I think all our communities will be very much better off. I suppose we've seen that. I, I work in a retail store in Penzance and mm -hmm. just at our level we've already started to see a kind of... I won't mention who I work for because that would probably incriminate them. Um, <laughs> however, we have noticed that even though we're part of a multinational chain, um, where we are, um, we'll have people come in, and even though it's against our kind of our company's policy and all that kind of thing, we will say to them, if they are an owner of another store in the town, look, we'll knock off something here when we come into yours. If you'll knock off something there, and I think we're starting to see that. I think I read an article somewhere that that's starting to become the kind of go-to thing for most of businesses, be they large or small, in the country, is that you'll see people start to just take matters into their own hands and rather than adhere to company policy, they'll start to adjust prices or just sneakily sneak something in as a way of almost carrying a, the, the start of that, I think what you're getting at, the kind of um, just dealing with people, not companies. Mm -hmm. So starting to actually trade rather than and sell and, and use commerce and I think we are starting to see that in not intrude but develop within this kind of economic climate and would you say you're going to see more of that definitely happening or oh definitely there, you, there's no question I think that is the future people will find ways around the need for money as an intermediary for everything because when you have the need for money as an intermediary and all of a sudden you have drastically less of it than you did before you can't find other ways to connect people, you know, producers and consumers or buyers and sellers, then your economy is just going to have a seizure. And, and I, I think to some extent having a seizure is inevitable just because the extent of the money dependency in our current economy. 
but the greater the extent to which we can reduce that dependency by coming up with trading arrangements and changing, exchanging time or skills or whatever it might be, the greater the extent that we can reduce the dependence on money, the better off our communities will all be. So I think absolutely we're going to see an enormous amount more of that. Obviously, uh, Cornwall, you've already mentioned it, it's, a lot of its revenue comes from tourism. The aside, kind of a, a side venture of tourism is obviously lots of people have holiday homes, rental houses here, but with the current kind of housing market very, very unstable, that's not proving as good a venture as, as it would have been about five, ten years yeah. ago. Um, would you say that? What would you say the situation of the housing market in Cornwall, which is one of the areas where we've got slightly a different housing market because of our location? Mm -hmm. Would you say it's how would it compare to the rest of the UK and, in essence, the world as well? I think the fact that you have a lot of, of investment property is going to be a major problem because basically. It's, real estate investments are going to be terrible investments and a lot of people who've bought holiday homes are going to find they cannot afford to pay for them. Prices here have been high for a while because of all the demand for holiday homes. When people can't pay mortgages, the first thing to go is the holiday home. So the amount of inventory you could see on the market in a place like this could be absolutely enormous. That means that the odds are quite high that property prices will fall further here than they will in many other places. Britain as a whole has one of the largest housing bubbles in the whole world, following after Ireland perhaps, but nevertheless one of the very largest. And an area like this is going to be much more vulnerable to having masses of inventory and therefore just plunging prices compared to, to other areas where, where there are more economic opportunities. Because you have the combination of what is likely to be an enormous amount of inventory and a sharp fall in the revenues, because so many of the revenues come from tourists, the price falls here are likely to be much bigger than somewhere like London, where, yes, it's very overvalued, yes, it's going to fall a long way, but you still have a lot of, of economic opportunities relative to somewhere like this. You'll have a lot fewer than you have now in, in somewhere like London, but there will still be more opportunities there than than in most other places. And I think you're probably not going to get the same amount of, of inventory on the market in somewhere like London because people don't buy holiday homes in London. Sometimes they buy, buy flats to, to rent out and things like that. But I don't think you have the same percentage of real estate that is second homes that people have been looking at to earn an income there. You, you will have some, but I think the, the combination here is likely to be to be worse, so I think prices have a very, very long way to fall. And I, I think if people owe money on properties, especially if they owe a lot of money compared to what the property is currently worth, I would say that's a huge vulnerability. They would be far better off selling and renting something. It doesn't mean they have to leave the area, but right now there are quite a lot of properties to rent. I, th I think there'll be even more as a lot of these people who can't find, I mean, people who have investment properties are going to find they can't sell it. They, they don't want to walk away if they're in negative equity, so they try and find someone to rent it to. And when the pool of renters who can actually afford to pay is quite small, then rents fall a very long way. 
So renting in the community could actually be a really, really good thing to do. And you can have your social capital, all your connections with community, but you don't have to own the house. If you own the house, you're on the hook for the property price risk. If you rent, you're paying someone else a fee every month to take that property price risk for you. And that's a really good bet when, when properties are likely to fall a long way. So I really warn people about the, the very high chance of a real property price collapse and to tell them to get out of the way if they possibly can so they're not on the hook for, for all the losses. Because you know, if you're a negative equity and the house is repossessed and the bank sells it off for less than you owe, they will come after you for the difference. Not like in parts of the states where you can send the keys back and it's the bank's problem. Here they will come after you for the difference, potentially for the rest of your life. But, so you really do dig yourself in a big hole in, in Europe if, if you're a negative equity. So be, beware, there's a giant warning signal over the property market here. And in England as a whole. Um, the other thing that Cornwall kind of differs from the rest of the UK about, uh, especially Penzance, and it's been a kind of trend that people have noticed. Um, the local population consists mainly of, um, well there was, a, there was kind of like a little boom about five years ago where Cornwall became the go-to place for retirees and mm -hmm. that kind of generation. Um, so much so that there were even thoughts that of the two school main schools in Penzance, one of them would have to close just because of the very low birth rate and the fact that we did the, what was needed to be two schools in the future. Um, obviously, that's not still ha there's no plans yet, but it has been noticed there is a trend. Um, could this kind of radical spectrum of population, because there isn't really that much in between, it's either very young and not very many, or over the retirement age and quite a lot, could that possibly be a problem for the kind of plans of the future of, of kind of Penwith, Penzance and, and Cornwall? Very much so because you need enough young people to look after an aging population and that aging population right now has been able to do things like move to live independently often quite a long way from where their children are they just like the climate here so they come here but they're dependent on their pensions and the NHS and they're plugged into a lot of top-down life support systems when those start to falter because the funding for them simply isn't there. I think a lot of these older people are going to have a major problem. If they've moved a long way from, from their family and their friends and social connections to depend on state supports, they're going to find that they, they may have no means of support. So either they end up having to leave and go back and live with their children, or they just have a really, really hard time. But I think the young population will not be enough to support them, especially if that young population is not related to them. I mean, if, if they're your grandparents, that's one thing. But if they're people you don't know, you know, do you really end up working very, very hard to support, to support people who've come into the community? It's hard to know. I, mean, I, I think people who've come into the community without connections and who are reliant on centralized life support systems are going to have a major problem. If they end up forced to leave, because they have to go back to where their, their children live, that leads to more inventory on the housing market. But it would mean the population would fall, and quite frankly, the, the, a smaller population will be easier to support with the land that you have. So it's not necessarily a bad thing if the population goes, goes down a bit, but it, it could be a really uncomfortable transition 
for those those older people who had been expecting to be able to retire in a nice climate on a pension. Pensions are Ponzi schemes, so the odds of those pensions continuing are really, really not high. I think people are going to find that they, they get to the years when they were expecting to play golf for 20 years and find that actually there is no such thing as retirement anymore, and that's going to create a lot of problems. Changing the subject a bit, <laughs> moving on to the next point. Um, the there is in fact a quite a connection between Cornwall and Japan. Um, I know that Cornwall College have connections to a town in the area which was recently affected by the earthquake and tsunami, um, and also Penwith uh, Penzance Town Council have in previous years done exchange programs as well with students from Kanagawa and places like that. Um, your your one special field, one of your fields of specialty that you have done, of course, was the safety of USSR nuclear reactors mm -hmm. and things like that. Um, and with news every day coming out from the Fukushima Daiichi plant in uh, Japan of just radically changing situations, um, the newest thing they've announced is that they are spraying resin onto the soil around the plant to stop the soil from getting elsewhere. Um, what, we, what we've seen, in, especially in the West at the moment, is a press that is either very, very, you, must, you could almost call it scaremongering, or a press that has kind of gone the opposite way and, and is trying to out the other side of the press for being scaremongers. Mm -hmm. What would your kind of thoughts be on the, the situation there at the moment? I think that it's, a, it's actually extremely complicated and evolving. Now there are two ways of looking at the potential effects. You could look at the radiation effects, the, the potential health impacts of radiation. If you live near Fukushima, leave. Within say 50 kilometers, leave. The radiation impacts there are going to be significant. You're going to see a lot of fallout. Iodine-131, which has a half-life of eight days, is a real risk for thyroid cancer. Cesium-137 and strontium-90 will sit in the, the earth. They both have a half-life of about 30 years. Sit in the earth for a very long time. And cesium-137 ends up in muscles and organs. Strontium-90 is absorbed as calcium ends up in bones. Both of those will create cancer risks. I would say even if you live as far away as Tokyo, though, the radiation effects are not going to be the major impact. So in the area of the plant, yes, absolutely. This is, this is a huge health impact from radiation. And it's going to get in the sea, it's going to get in the air. But I think the long-term, the, the longer distance health impacts are not going to be that significant. In fact, even in places like Tokyo, I'm not convinced that they'd even be perceptible depending on the time frame you look at and depending which way the groundwater flows because you could get a, a slug of radiation in the groundwater that could make its way in that direction if that's the direction the groundwater flows and, and I don't know. But for instance at Chernobyl there's a large slug of radioactivity in the groundwater making its way towards Kiev. Kiev is only 80 kilometers from Chernobyl. That's less than half the distance of Tokyo to, to Fukushima. 2.6 million people still live in Kiev. And, and the cancer rates in places like that, although they have increased, in, there are many places where the cancer rates have not increased that much in the last 25 years. 
the water effects could concentrate that a lot more. So in places where the groundwater becomes contaminated, if people are really relying on on groundwater as, as a water source and for, for irrigation and things, then that could have a longer term, very significant impact. But there's a major difference in terms of radioactive impact between Chernobyl and, and Fukushima. Although in Fukushima you have four reactors at least that are involved, if not six, and the spent fuel pools, and there's a lot more spent fuel at Fukushima than there was at, at Chernobyl. What you don't have at Fukushima is the kind of accident scenario that happened at Chernobyl where what you had was a reactor with no containment whatsoever where the lid blew off and the entire thing, all the graphite moderator caught fire and for days what you had was a nuclear volcano. You had the, the, this enormous fire just lofting radioactive particles into the upper atmosphere which is what led them to spread all over Europe. So for instance, there's more radioactive fallout in Cumbria from Chernobyl than there was from Sellafield, and Sellafield is in Cumbria. So there was enormous impacts. Northern Scandinavia, parts of Germany who still can't eat certain things. So, so Chernobyl was right in the middle of a continent. It had the prevailing winds blew everything over that continent, and you had this this mechanism to actually loft it all into the upper atmosphere to distribute it. You don't have that at Fukushima. You have the potential for steam explosions and hydrogen explosions that will, to some extent, push things up into the atmosphere. And you'll have volatile elements that will end up in the atmosphere. But almost certainly not in anything like the concentrations that you had at, at Chernobyl. So I think the potential for distribution over a wide area is much smaller. Plus, the prevailing winds typically blow it out to sea. So you're getting dis distribution or dispersal in, in the air. If it ends up in the sea, the fallout probably ends up in the sea because you've got the whole Pacific Ocean to get across before you hit land. So then you have another dispersal mechanism. So I think although these effects, are, the radiation levels will be detectable, I think there's a big difference between detectable and causing a health impact. And when you move into a depression, you have some really immediate health impacts, like what am I going to eat tomorrow? Things like that are, I think, in, in not too many years' time, are going to be much more on people's minds than will I get cancer in 50 years? Or is the chance of me getting cancer in 50 years 50% 50 more than it would have been had I not lived where I do? People will not think of long-term things if they don't know where the next meal is coming from. So I, I think with, with Fukushima, the main effect beyond the area of the plant will be knock-on economic effects rather than direct health impacts. So between Tokyo and Fukushima is the, the heartland of Japanese industrial society. Many parts of that may be very heavily impacted. Some of them will be close enough to the plant. They might end up in an exclusion zone. Other parts of it, well, they may simply find that they can't get workers there. Nobody's going to want to live somewhere they think might be contaminated, whether the health effects are, are really something to be concerned about or not. And there's so much of the high-tech industry of the world that, that has its, its roots in that part of Japan that you could actually have significant economic effects at a distance for, as a result of, of this nuclear accident. So you can get well, we have a, a just-in-time economic system where you don't keep stockpiles anymore. You just order what you need as and when you need it. 
and we've, we've got rid of all the safety margins, all the, the buffers, if you like, in the name of economic efficiency. So what we have is a really brittle system. And you, you can have the effect of something like the accident in Japan causing cascading system failure. And, and you're, you see that to some extent, or the potential for it in Tokyo now, where arguably the health impact is, is still quite negligible at this point, but people are buying up everything on the shelves and all the bottled water, for instance, because the government said maybe you, sh you shouldn't use tap water to make baby formula and things like that. People panic, they buy up everything, and then you have an enormous city and what are you going to eat? So that kind of thing, the human overreaction, can actually have a very significant negative impact that has nothing whatsoever to do with radiation but everything to do with the fear of radiation and the fear that there might be shortages. So people anticipate shortages. If, if they think there are shortages coming, they will buy up everything they possibly can, which raises demand a lot further than, than normal. And then the production or delivery systems can't cope with the higher level of demand, so you can find that you crash your, your system as a result of the fear, the overreaction of, of human beings. Now, there are places in France where pharmacies are selling out of potassium iodide. And quite frankly, the odds of there ever being any detectable health impact in France or anywhere in Europe, or probably almost anywhere in North America, is really, really low. But people, people are panicking anyway. I've seen discussions where you know, two days after the accident, before anything could conceivably have got across the Pacific, I was reading things where, where people in Southern California were saying, should I send my children to school? It might be dangerous to send them outside. There might be fallout. And this is an unbelievable overreaction to what's actually going on. I, I really worry about the human impact of fear. Of you know, Fear spreads like a wildfire. And people can overreact in really extreme ways and cause impacts that are utterly unnecessary. And that, I think, is, is really very likely. And <laughs> I, I did an interview recently with Max Kaiser, and he was pointing out that there was this plume, this detectable plume of xenon-133 spreading around the upper atmosphere. And I, I don't think it actually made it into the interview, but xenon-133 is a radionucleotide that they give people to inhale in order to image their pulmonary function. And I'm quite sure that what you inhale for, for a test like that is going to be at a higher level than anything you're going to inhale as a result of Fukushima. So people are, again, overreacting. Just because something is detectable does not mean that it produces a health risk. But it's very hard to separate those two. We deliberately design our equipment to be able to detect incredibly small quantities. You know, that's not likely to have a health effect. It's not to say that nobody could ever get cancer as, as a result, but considering that somewhere between one in two and one in three of us are going to get cancer for one reason or another, I don't think the difference as a result of this outside of the area around the plant is ever going to be detectable. Cancer is an absolutely horrible thing, but there are many things in our environment that will cause it. Radiation is probably actually one of the lower cancer risks for most of us, I'm sure chemical contamination and, or sitting out in the sun for too long are going to be larger effects. Or if you happen to live on granite and spend any time in your basement, you're going to be inhaling radon. 
you're probably going to be breathing in far more radiation merely by having a basement in a house built on granite than you ever are from, from an accident halfway around the world. You know, if it was right next door to you, yes, but, but it isn't. So I, I think we have to bear in mind that there is a lot of scaremongering going on. There is a lot of overreaction, especially distant from the plant. But we can't, we can't forget that within the area of the plant, this is incredibly serious. It's an absolute disaster. And it really does have a lot of lessons, I think, for, for nuclear power in general, that you have this huge dependence on power systems. You must have a power supply at all times in order to circulate the coolant. And a number of nuclear accidents, including Chernobyl and Fukushima, the root cause has been the loss of the ability to cool the reactor. Station blackout is the risk that they would call, and then a loss of coolant accident. So if you have a, a technology that it has this critical dependence, and then you go and build it in a seismic zone, things like that, that, that is a huge risk that you take. But even if you don't build it somewhere like that, there is still the problem that we have not worked out what to do with spent fuel at all, anywhere in the world. People say, why is all this spent fuel sitting there in these open ponds in Japan with no containment? It's not just the Japanese that do this, it's everybody. Every nuclear reactor in the world has spent fuel pools in exactly the same circumstances as the ones in Japan. It's not just the reactors that require constant cooling and therefore constant power supply, it's the spent fuel as well. And the amount of time that you have to look after this stuff for and manage it because it's still a radiation risk and a heat risk. In other words, if you don't cool it, it is going to melt down even if the fuel's been sitting there for a very long time. If you have that built-in dependence, how are you going to then manage the spent fuel and the decommissioning, which may have to be done a hundred years from now? Are we even going to have anyone who remembers how to do it? Are we going to have any money? Because we get all the power and all the revenue streams today we're not going to be saving any of that to leave for our grandchildren to fix the mess we've made. It's possible that, that many, many reactors could end their lives by melting down. And so we could have many instances like Fukushima. You don't have to have an earthquake and a tsunami. You might just have to have the combination of a blackout because your power system became unreliable combined with, say, a lack of knowledge the average age of nuclear engineers is probably between 50 and 60. It just hasn't seemed like a career to go into if you're young. And so we're not necessarily going to be leaving a pool of trained people who know how to, how to address these risks. And as we see in Japan, even if you do have a pool of trained people, if what you end up doing is sending them to their deaths to fix the problem, then you can lose that pool of people really rather quickly. I think a lot of the people at Fukushima who are working there now are going to die of, of radiation poisoning, as they did at, at Chernobyl. So I think there are many complicated aspects to this, this situation, and we need to separate out the different effects. What are the radiological health impacts? What are the social impacts? What are the human overreactions? And should we, be, should we be building nuclear plants in the first place, given that there's this mismatch of revenue and costs versus the waste that we've never developed solutions for? So that there's an awful lot to think about. Um, and obviously, Japan's economy wasn't in great shape before it happened. I think they're in their, they're in their second decade of decline or something like that. So um, is, is this pretty much the straw that broke the camel's back, do you think? 
I would say yes. Uh, Japan is the world's largest debtor, GDP. Debt to GDP, 471% last time I looked. That is the worst in the world. They've been fighting deflation for tw over 20 years. Their bubble peaked in 1989. So what they've been doing is, oh, they were once the world's largest creditor, an enormous pile of money. So they've been burning through that enormous pile of money, building four-lane highways from nowhere to nowhere, trying to stimulate the economy. Nothing has worked for, for over 20 years. So they burned through all that money. They had the combination of all that money plus an export economy at a time when the global economy was massively booming. So there was just this enormous amount of consumption elsewhere. So they were able to stave off the effects of deflation, which is rare. Most, most of the time you can't do that. Deflation plays out very, very quickly. They could do it because of this combination of an enormous amount of money to begin with and the fact that they were the only ones that were contracting at that time. Everyone else was booming. So they were able to generate revenue from other places to make up for the, the fallen aggregate demand at, at home. But now they are the world's worst debtor, and they have they have a system. Where, their power system, for instance, is 50 hertz half of it, 60 hertz the other half. So when you shut down all these reactors, you can't necessarily share power easily from one place to another. You can end up with an enormous impact on the economy from, from that, and from the fact that people don't necessarily want to work in these places if they're perceived to be too close to the, the plant that's in trouble. You have enormous devastation all the way down the coast. And the United States never even bothered to rebuild New Orleans properly after Hurricane Katrina. And if they didn't manage to do that with one small area of coast when they were actually doing quite well economically at the time, what are the odds that Japan will be able to fix all that devastation when they're, they're already the world's largest debtor? And are they going to borrow the money? Where are they going to get the money for, uh, from to, to actually fix that level of devastation? I'm not convinced that they will. So I think this could definitely be, for them, the straw that broke the camel's back. And then there could be knock-on effects, as we were talking about before, that because so much of the high-tech heartland is going to be impacted by this, then the significant effects in other, other parts of the, the world economy could be really quite huge. Of, say, Japan, Obviously, it will. Um, it must do at some point, just because of everything that's going wrong there. Um, who do you think? Which countries do you think will be most severely affected, other than Japan itself? Obviously, a lot of tech industry now is also based in China. Um, I know Apple have a lot of factories in. I think they're called the Foxconn factories in China as well. But will it, obviously, products made it or based in their roots in Japan will affect America, Europe, all those kind of places. Do you think, which kind of industry do you think it will mainly affect, just the high-tech stuff, or do you think other, other aspects of, of the economy will falter due to this situation? I think high-tech and, and things like car manufacturing, it's not that the finished products are necessarily made in Japan, but the components are the wafers and things like that, the chips, and when you start to look at, at the components that are overwhelmingly made in parts of Japan, then you may not be able to make the finished product even if the finished product would have been made somewhere else. So there are knock-on effects, and I think high-tech will be the biggest one. 
but already you're finding you can't make certain colors of car because the paint comes from that part of Japan. I mean, mind you, that's fairly trivial. You could you could go the Henry Ford route and say you can have any color you want as long as it's black. You know? But but there are other components as well that are are made there, not necessarily exclusively. Although there are some things that are really heavily concentrated there. But in, in, other, in other fields, it's going to take out a certain percentage of the production of, of certain kinds of components. And, and I think that is going to have a knock-on effect in many places. So high-tech will be the most affected, I, I think. And would you say, if Japan was the first domino in the chain of everything, the, you know, the tragedy that happened there obviously has uh, affected world markets, they they shot down on the day it went up. In fact the yen bizarrely went up because it's oh, not bizarre at all. Because it was <laughs> it was because it was something like it used to be the safest bet but then everyone kinda of bought it up just as it happened. I remember reading about it but there was, was a gigantic carry trade in the yen that lasted for years and years and years. People were borrowing money in Japan at next to nothing because it was a giant engine of liquidity expansion throughout the world. People were borrowing money in yen, then buying bonds in Australia and New Zealand where they'd get 7% on it and, and playing off the difference. So it was a massive carry trade. Now money is coming back to Japan. People are looking to try to bring money home to repair damage and things. And the carry trade is unwinding. We, we've been writing about this at the Automatic Earth on and off, mentioned that the, the carry trade was hugely vulnerable. And at some point, we were going to see the yen absolutely skyrocket as this went into reverse. And it looks like the, the uh, earthquake and tsunami could be the engine that starts the unwinding of, of the carry trade. So we're going to see the yen go up very sharply, which is, of course, going to make their exports less competitive. And they are an export economy, which is already vulnerable to the, its traditional consumers not having enough money to buy the products that it exports. So this is just going to create another enormous problem for Japan. But this is another thing that was visible years in advance. And you don't have to predict an earthquake and a tsunami to say that the, the carry trade was going to unwind. It was going to do that anyway. But this, this set of events will just sharpen that or perhaps bring it forward a little bit. But that vulnerability has been very acute and has been there for a very long time. So uh, that sort of thing is not actually unpredictable at all. The dollar is very likely to go up too, which is another thing that will really surprise people because people just think, oh, the dollar is not going to be the reserve currency anymore and what effect is that going to have? But you have the combination of dollar-denominated debt deflation where as, as people try to pay back dollar-denominated debt, of which there is more than any other kind in the world, that creates demand for dollars. Plus you get a knee-jerk flight to safety into the reserve currency so that's very likely to prop up the U.S. dollar as well. So perhaps capital flight from Europe on sovereign debt default risk ends up going to the United States because there is the perception of fear of sovereign debt default here, and there isn't in the U.S., even although the debt situations are, are comparable. It's, it's fear that drives markets, and money goes from where the fear is to where the fear isn't. So I think we're very likely to see capital flight into the dollar. So I think we're going to see a number of very significant effects that that people see as coming out of left field. People will say, oh, it was a black swan, we couldn't have predicted it. Most of these things are predictable in advance. If you know what to look for and you're paying attention, most of these things, can you can see them coming a mile off. And so it's, it's a question of, you see it coming a long way off, 
deal with it before it gets there. Because if you can prepare for these things in advance, they don't have to completely pull the rug out from under your feet. And that's, that's really what we do at the Automatic Earth. Our job is to see these things coming a mile off and warn people, and then tell them what it is they can hope to do about it. And almost nobody else does that. Almost nobody else does the big picture in the way that we do. And there are many people who look at energy or finance or political analysis or whatever it might be, but almost nobody brings it all together. And, and to us, that's the key. That really is what you have to do. You, you can't oversimplify and be reductionist and look at only one area of what's going on in the world and ignore the context. You have to deal with complexity, but you have to at the same time make complexity comprehensible. And, and that is, seems, a, seems a, a worthy thing to be devoting our existences to. Cool. Anyway, that's probably the uh, end of our time there, but thank you very much. People, of course, can visit your website at theautomaticearth.blogspot.com. Yep. Mm -hmm. And you are still touring the UK and various other places. I believe it's Exeter's coming up. Exeter, Lancaster and Aberdeen this week. Then I'm in Ireland in Kilkenny, Cork and Donegal. Uh, I will be back in, the, in uh, Europe as of the end of July for probably a number of months. So I will be around again. I will be in Cornwall again probably in August. So uh, yeah, I'd be more than happy to come and talk to anyone who'd like to listen. That's great. Thank you very much. You're very welcome.